This is God's word from Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, or the one who God smiles upon. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The grass withers and the flower fades. Word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I had planned on this being the sermon topic for today, but this might be a good sermon topic, the Lord of Assurance, as we think about entering towards the end of this year and some of the things that um, we have before us. And so I want to really just ask this simple question and then dive right into this text. How does the Lord assure us? I think this is a question that Christians often ask. How can I know? How can I be sure that God's promises are true? That He is at work with me? That He'll not leave me and forsake me? How can I know for sure that if He calls me to do something and says, obey this or do this act, that I'll have the strength and the ability and the courage to act in the moment that is necessary? This text actually addresses those very issues. And so I want us to really look and see how we can be assured by the Lord that He is the Lord of assurance, that He rules over assurance for us and to us, and that we can have confidence in it. Well, the first thing I want us to look at here is that He calls us by name. I want you to see here that He comes and God said to Abraham, I mean, this is simple stuff, but I want you to realize how profound it is as you read this text. He calls Abraham a name that he gave Abraham. He calls him by name. Not only does he call him by name, but he calls Sarah by her name and says, no longer will we call her Sarai, but we will call her Sarah. And the interesting thing is, all he did was change pronunciation and he took it from being more Chaldean and making it more of what would be come to be Hebrew. He just basically Hebraized her name. But it's significant that he did that. Because see, what God is doing here as he calls her by name, is he says, Abraham, it's not just you. It's not just you who will be 
called by a name that will be remembered in this covenant. But your wife matters too. It's not Hagar. It's not any other woman. It is, in fact, Sarah, who will be the one whose name I will call upon to give birth to Isaac, the promised seed. Now I want you to think about that and think about how amazing that is. Many times, I want you to think about this as we look and consider how God operates with us. Oftentimes when things are difficult, things are hard, things aren't going the way we'd like them to go, we tend to think, I'm forgotten. But how many of us know and how awesome is it when someone comes in a time when we're struggling and we hear our name? Dennis, it's going to be okay. Jane, it's going to be all right. How often do we really realize how sweet and compassionate God is that He promises that He knows us by name? And oftentimes I wonder how often we're not listening when He's talking and saying, It's going to be all right. And He calls us by name. Now, if you hear that audibly, come and talk to me. We may need to have some conversations. But I will say this to you. I have had the Lord speak to me in my heart and in my spirit in profound ways. I'm not afraid of that. That My theology is not undone because God is very real and very present with His people and loves us and comforts us through His Word, and speaks words of encouragement and confidence to us. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. He knows us by name. Isaiah 43, which we sang yesterday as we closed our congregational meeting, I want to read this to you, and I want you to hear the language of of this calling us by name. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as a ransom. Cush and Siba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. You see, it's no small thing in this text that God says, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Ishmael. It's a great thing. He knows them by name. He's not a God who's far off. He's a God who's very, very near and very, very interested in what's happening in each and every one of our lives. He knows. He cares. You're not alone. It's a lie to believe that. You are not alone. Second point I want us to consider this morning is He gives us His promises. Now I want you to think about this. This is incredible when we think about God giving promises. Because on the one hand we could say, God could just give His promises and do what He wants to do and really not consult us, not inform us. In fact, there are things He doesn't inform us about. We know that there are the secret things that belong to the Lord. But the point is is that He doesn't just have secret things. He has revealed things that belong to us and to our children. 
And so I want us to understand that as we consider this, that God gives promises to us for a reason. It's not just that he's saying it's all about me. You need to know these promises. He's saying something to us too. And here's what I want you to think about it. Part of that acceptance, part of that you're valued, your worth, is seen in God revealing himself to us. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if you have important things to discuss, you don't just tell anybody on the street. These are, these are important truths. These are things that really matter. These aren't just flippant comments God's making to Abraham saying, hey, how's the weather? How about them bears? Go Cubs. That, that's not the idea that's being had here. I knew Bill would appreciate that. Um, that's not the kind of conversation that's going on here. The kind of conversation that's going on is these are sobering, amazing, incredible things that God is sharing. And we'd see if we were to read on into chapter 18 that God, even after He comes and visits with Abraham and comes to talk with him, says, should I tell Abraham about these things that are about to go on? And he says, how can I keep it from him? See, this value, this worth that he places on human beings, frail little specks of dust, in the middle of great specks of dust, he says, you matter. You're significant. Because I bother to talk to you. Not because you're significant in yourself, but you're significant because I give you value and worth. I speak words to you that hold truth, that are life transforming, that are earth transforming, that are universe transforming. So you need to understand that him talking about Isaac, this is what you need to understand. Isaac, this one, this promised child, is ultimately going to arrive in Jesus. The creator of all things. The sustainer of all things is going to show up from this line. This is cosmic information. People who get this information, if they really take it serious, can never be the same. Abraham, it's not any other woman but that beloved woman of your heart over there, that old, wrinkled-up woman who basically society says she ain't got much left to give, maybe a few parcels of wisdom, that woman is going to give you a son. Now, the reason why you need to see this is because even Abraham has enough... I mean, he's just overwhelmed with this. And aren't we often overwhelmed when people say you're worth it? We don't know what to do with ourselves most of the time, I mean, unless we're just really arrogant and full of ourselves. Most of us, when people really show us a high level of value, a high level of concern, they really invest themselves in our lives, there's a part of us that doesn't really know what to do with that. It's just so overwhelming that someone would care that much to extend themselves that far. And do the things. Do you understand that that's kind of what's happening here with Abraham? He's kind of saying, Sarah and I really can't be worth all this trouble. Don't you hear it in his language? Listen to what he says. He says, And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Isn't that a good question? I mean, he's kind of laughing, thinking, I mean, Lord, come on. Really? And Sarah, who is 99 years old, will bear a child? I mean, Lord, you know, maybe, maybe the man, but Sarah? I mean, you realize what it takes to have a child? 
She's 99 years, or she's, you know, 99, 90 years old, excuse me, will bear a child. And so then he says, look, Lord, let me give you an easy way out. Here's Ishmael. Just bless him. I mean, that's incredible, but Lord, you know, this is really all you got to do. I'll really be satisfied with this. And see, this is the way we tend to operate. You know, I'll be okay if I just have a Savior that will help me make next month's rent. I'll be okay if you just give me a Savior that would actually just keep me from having to spend a lot of time in purgatory. I'd be okay if you just... But see, that's not the kind of God we have here. This is a God that says, you have no idea the value that I place on your person. I'm not just going to sort of save you. I'm not just going to sort of bless you. I'm not just going to sort of give you a son. I'm going to astound you. I'm going to blow your mind with how glorious and wonderful I can be in your midst. And we'll see soon when we look at this passage next week where Sarah actually gives birth to Isaac. She's blown away. She's astounded. And see, what I want you to see this morning is that God gives us promises that tell us you matter. It's a lie to say you don't. So we've got two lies. To say I'm not important, to say I'm not accepted, to say I'm not brought into the faith and the family by what God has said to me is a lie. To say I'm not worth it is a lie. Third thing we need to consider then this morning. He gives us His presence. So what does this begin to teach us? This begins to teach us that if God is with us, we can never say, I'm alone. We live in a society that is plagued by loneliness. It's plagued. There's a book I have in my office about Generation X, which is my generation, called The Generation Alone. People have this angst of, we're all alone. Our parents divorced. There's no security in this life. There's nothing sure. Society's coming unglued. And we're the next generation. You realize that Barack Obama at 47 is the tail end of, of the boomers. The next generation is, is my generation, the 45 and under crew. We're coming in, scary or not. We're on our way. Most senators and congressmen and women are coming out of our generation. And this is a generation that has angst, that's skeptical, that's not sure that anything is really going to happen the way it, people say it is. In fact, what we've seen is that when people say they're going to be there, they're a bunch of liars. They're not. Now, you see how this begins to impact this generation? And the one behind it and behind it and behind it, because you realize they're raising the, the next generation that's going to raise the next generation. It is incredibly powerful as God's people that we really are not people who walk around saying, we're all alone. We're all alone in this world. What are we going to do? How are we going to make it? How are we going to get through? We have to be people who believe that we're not alone. That God, when He says, I'm with you, when His presence shows up, that He really means that. I'm with you. I'm here. I'm around you. Now, part of what that should do to us is in a certain way give us a holy fear, right? God has showed up and says He's with us. We have kind of that before the face of God reality. 
And we're going to see that that's what leads Abraham to do what he does in obedience to God. It's that reality that God is watching. You know, it's, it's like the, the little catechism question that we teach our children. Where is God? Everywhere. What does God see? Everything. Uh-oh. Cookie jars are no longer unwatched. Right? God's there. Everywhere. But He's especially with His people. The point is, is that while we see that aspect of it, we should also see that when He's with us, He's with us to do us good, not to do us harm. And see, that's what we see happening in this passage is that God has come to say, Abraham, I've come to bless you. I've come to give you a sign and a seal which says, you're mine, you're favored, you matter, I care about you, and I care about everybody that's with you. So they all get the sign too. So you all remember, when God is for you, no one can really be against you. That's what's happening in this passage. The last thing I want us to see then this morning is he gives us obedience. Now I'm specifically saying he gives us obedience because I want you to see what's happening in this passage. Abraham would have never known what to do had God not come and told him, would he? Other people got circumcised, but it didn't have the significance that it was supposed to have for Abraham. The only way he finds that out is that God gives him that knowledge and information. The second thing is, is that what was going to compel Abraham to do it? What, what compels Abraham to do this? What compels him is this. Listen to what God says. God does not let him, when he says, let Ishmael, he says, no. But Sarah, verse 19, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took. And what we see happening in this passage is, is that the reality of God's presence, the reality of his word, the reality of calling us by name, that that takes place in such a way that it transforms the person who might never have done these things to a person who would do it. Look, a hundred years old, cutting his foreskin. Ow! Major ow! Thirteen years old. Ow! And all the other men in, in his household. I mean, you got a bunch of hurting men and, that, and women... Trust me, most of you have had to take care of sick husbands. Is that a nice time, usually? Answer, usually, no. Men can be really grouchy and grumpy when they're hurting and not feeling good. I mean, think about it. Abraham does this to himself. It's not like he says, oh, okay, well, I'll go do this to Ishmael and all these guys. That's good. No, he starts with himself, which may give us some indication of how repentance and faith and growth and grace should take place too. It starts with ourselves, then our family, and then works its way out to everyone around us. But do you see that it's the Lord who gives him obedience? This is not something that Abraham conjures up in himself to go do. It's this overwhelming reality of the good news he's being told. Sarah, Isaac, I'm not going to leave Ishmael out. Don't worry. I'll take care of him too. All this. He's astounded at the goodness of God and that compels him into active obedience. 
Because obedience is all, true obedience is always a matter of a transformed heart. It's not a matter of self-will. It's a matter of a transformed heart. And so it takes the Lord to give true obedience. Obedience, yes. We believe James, right? You show me your faith by what you say you believe, and I'll show you my faith by my works. We see Abraham being a man of faith. He doesn't get circumcised in order to get faith. He has faith, so he gets circumcised. But the rest of this clan is brought in, right? His household is brought in because of his faith. This reality is permeating through this text. It's permeating through the Bible. It is God who is at work. It is God who changes people. It is God who enables people to actually obey. I think one of the problems in the church is that we forget this. So when someone doesn't do the right thing, we're surprised. We, we need to get back into the way we ought to see things. And that is, when someone does the right thing, it ought to shock the crud out of us. They did something right. Unbelievable. Sin nature was actually turned back. Jesus really does have the power to change wicked, vile people into people who actually can do some good in this world in a major transformative way. We don't tend to look at it that way. We tend to get on this disposition that we're surprised when, well, I can't believe that pastor committed adultery. I can't believe how many pastors don't. Well, I can't believe that that pastor would not tell the truth. I can't believe how many pastors do tell the truth, even in the face of the difficulty that they're going to get when they tell the truth. See, this is the disposition we have to once again come to and realize. It's only God who enables a sinful man like Phil Henry or Dennis Hermerding to stand up in front of people and expose our hearts and say, look, here's the reality of a life lived. Good and bad, frustrating and glorious. It's only Jesus that can enable people to do that. Otherwise, we want to be people who hide and say, oh yes, we're very holy, and oh yes, we read our Bibles three, t three hours every day, and of course we do all these things. And we probably do a lot of those things. But that's not what makes us able to do the things we do. It's the transforming work of God through the power of His Spirit, through the work of Jesus. That's what changes us. Now, in conclusion, I want us to look at this. If everybody would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, we see this happen. This is a great story. All of you know it. The kids can get involved. Right? It's the story of Zacchaeus. All you kids know that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, right, for the Lord he wanted to see. But I want you to see the power that's going on in this passage as we look at it of what we see in Genesis chapter 17. Luke 19, it says this. Jesus, is who it's speaking of, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. Again, what's that telling us? He matters. His name is mentioned. He's significant. Zacchaeus was there. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Ooh. He's the bad guy. He's gotten rich off his own people, putting his boot on their necks. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was very small in stature. Now, I want you to think about this. That small in stature, Luke's using that intentionally. It's, it's a word play on. Zacchaeus doesn't think much of himself because he's not thought much of. 
He's small in stature, not thinking, not thought much of. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. You matter. You're significant. I know your name. And I'm calling you to action and activity. You got to come down and you got to go home and get ready because I'm coming to stay with you. You see it? Same ideas, all working in this passage. And then look what happens. And when they, and so he hurried down and came and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He, was, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What kind of Jesus is this? He's hanging out with the refuse. Prostitutes, bums, tax collectors. What kind of Jesus is this? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Just like Isaac. He, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now here's how I want you to see how this all ties in nice and neat. Did you see what happened to Zacchaeus when Jesus did all those things for him? He gives half his money to the poor. And out of what he has left, after he's given half, you saw that, right? He gave half of all his wealth to the poor. And then out of what he has left, he says, anyone I've defrauded, I'll give fourfold back. Where did he get that idea from? If you were to go peruse Deuteronomy you'd find out. This is not a man who hates God's law. Rather, once Jesus has transformed him, he's set free to do the will of the Lord. He's set free to do those things which seemed impossible, which Peter will go on to say later on in Acts 15. We couldn't endure the weight of the law. It's so powerful, it overwhelms us. But with Jesus, what seems impossible is possible. You see, men and women, boys and girls, as you think about this season of the Incarnation, that Jesus came, and you see what Jesus is able to do, that same transforming power is present with us this morning. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never come to know Him, if you've played around with it, said, yeah, I've gone to church, I know all these things, but you've never actually come to know this Jesus who can actually set you free from the burdens of trying to do it all by yourself or to feel like you're all by yourself. If you really want to be a new person, not just turning over a new leaf, but a brand new person, this morning... You can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm messed up. I can't do it. I'm at the end of myself. But I come to you trusting that you are able to put me together, that you're able to clean me up, that you're able to make me new. If you pray that this morning, the promise of the Scriptures is you, Jesus will do it, for he cannot forsake his own. We pray that God would make it so in our midst. Amen.